The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning as your children with the blessed assurance that you love us and that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. And your word is a gift of love to your people to instruct us, to shape us, to give us hope in heaven and hope upon earth, to give us joy in Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I went to, uh, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and many of you know this, but after high school, I went on to the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, the Mizzou Tigers. Uh, who I can proudly say their football team is still undefeated this year, which is fantastic. Um, they haven't played a game yet, so, you know, we're doing well. Um, but went to Mizzou, loved Mizzou, great experience. Uh, started up a ministry there through God's work in me uh, called Young Life. Uh, after college, I married Trish, and we moved back to Columbia, Missouri, and I was on staff with Young Life there in Columbia, Missouri for two years. Uh, ministry went very well. Um, and the reason I tell you that is because after two years, we moved up to Bloomer, Wisconsin, which is the rope jumping capital of the world. It's about 20 minutes north of Chippewa Falls, if you know where that is. And thinking that since ministry had gone so well and God had used me to start this thing up and it, and it grew and things like that, that I'd do good at something like sales. And so I decided I would make my money by, by starting up uh, a business of some sort. So so what I decided to do was to sell advertising. That's what I tell people. I'd never tell them the full thing because it's a little bit embarrassing to me for some reason. But what I would do is I would sell advertising for these little coupon books that would be handed out to college students the first day of class. And then that way they would go and visit these businesses. And so I went to hundreds of businesses trying to get them to buy this advertising, these little coupons to put in this book to hand out to college students. And after visiting hundreds of different companies, I think I got one contract. Um, and so I still remember sitting in a parking lot in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I was in a strip mall parking lot. Uh, the big mall was behind it. And I remember sitting there and for 15 minutes just trying to will myself to go in and try to make another sale. And I remember sitting there and coming to really two big realizations that changed my life. One was that I was bad at sales. Like I stunk at selling. And the second realization was I hated it. Like, I didn't like doing it. And so I remember just starting my car and saying, all right, I'm done. Uh, and that kind of started a year of floundering. Went back, uh, started looking for jobs. Uh, surprisingly, not a whole lot of people are looking for someone who has, a, who has a bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies. Evidently, that's not something people are looking for. And so had trouble finding a job. Um, and then a Young Life position actually came up in Chippewa County, and I thought, this is it. This is why God moved me back here, so I could serve in this role. Um, I had a really good resume, so I thought, man, this is a sure lock. Well, you can guess how it went. Uh, they chose the other guy, and so I continued to flounder looking for a job. Um, I got a job building sunrooms for a while, um, which was fun for a while, but we actually had to, we had to dig these holes 14 inches wide and 4 feet deep, and we had to do it all by hand because the augers were only 12 inches wide. And so I found out that I had a very weak back, and I hurt my back several times. And so after a few months, I had to quit that. So I picked up substitute teaching, and I substitute taught for a while. And that actually went really well, but it was not consistent, and it certainly wasn't a way to provide for a family. 
And so there I was kind of floundering. It seemed like every way I went, uh, things just went wrong, uh, that nothing seemed to go right, that I didn't get a break uh, to go my way. I, I don't know if you've ever been there um, where you have felt like nothing's going right, where everything seems to be going wrong. Uh, but that's what we have today in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you would, please open up to Acts chapter 28. Uh, we'll be looking at the first half. Next week, we will end the book of Acts, and then after that, we will start Romans. Um, but again, you know, thinking about, uh, have you had those times, those weeks, or those years where it seems like nothing goes right, where you get out of the frying pan and jump into the fire? This is what happens for Paul. So just again, to set the setting for you, uh, Paul was on trial in Caesarea, which is close to Jerusalem. Um, he, is, he is certain that he's not going to get a fair trial. Plus, he wants to go to Rome so that he can proclaim the gospel in the heart of the empire and get a fair trial. So he appeals to Caesar's court. He is granted that. And so he starts this journey towards Caesar's court. If you look up here at the map, uh, this can just kind of remind you from last week, if you were here, uh, Paul took off from Caesarea, went to Sidon, up to Myra, where he switched ships to sail to Rome. There was a great storm that pushed them south. They ended up here in Fair Havens. Uh, they decided to try to go in winter in Phoenix, even though Paul recommended that they didn't because of the season they were in. Turns out Paul was right, and they are hit by a typhoon, a hurricane, and it says in the passage that they gave up all hope of being saved. And so they were pretty certain that they were going to die in this storm. Well, the Lord graciously pushed them along. They didn't know where they were because it was cloudy, it was rainy. They couldn't see the stars or the sun. That would be their compass. And by God's grace, he pushes them to this island called Malta. Um, and so they get there to Malta and they shipwreck offshore. They hit a reef and the boat is falling apart, but all of the people make it to shore. Now, if you could imagine yourself in that situation where you think you're going to die, you have all hope is lost, and now you are approaching land, and your feet touch the ground, okay, underwater, and as you're walking up, you could imagine how exhilarated these people were, how overjoyed, how comforted they were. And so this is the situation that Paul is in and where we start our passage today. Verse 28, or chapter 28, let's start with just reading verses 1 through 4. Says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed, of, showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. I don't know if you've ever heard the term snake bitten. Is that, do people know the term snake bitten? Have you heard the term snake bitten? Anyone? Snake bitten? Okay, we got one person. Great. So snake bitten is a term that I have heard used. It's not used very commonly. But what it refers to is a season of misfortune, a season of failure, a season of what people would call bad luck. And that's what I was experiencing when I was in Bloomer, Wisconsin. This is what Paul is experiencing here. Um, and I wonder even if the, the term snakebitten is, is named after this passage. But when we look at this, what we see is Paul has just survived 
two weeks in the eye of a hurricane, okay, on a boat, being tossed in the sea. He makes it to Malta. The people are friendly. Uh, Everything is going well. They start a fire for him. Everything is great. But then Paul starts to begin to help put this fire together. So he goes and he grabs sticks to throw on the fire. Now remember, it's raining. It's overcast. It's probably dark. um, And Paul is probably very tired. But also, what I didn't know until this week is that because snakes are cold-blooded, when it's cold out, they'll stiffen like a stick. And so Paul picks all these, things, all these sticks up along with the snake, throws them into the fire, and of course the heat alivens the viper, and it latches onto Paul, and it's a poisonous snake. And so what you see is Paul, again, kind of jumps out of the frying pan, and into the fire. He gets off of this ship where all hope is lost. He lands, and then there is a viper that bites him, a poisonous viper. Now, this alone would be bad enough, but it gets worse. Look at verse 4 with me again. It says, When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, Let's get this man some medical attention. Lay him down along the fire. Warm him up. Get him some water. Right? Is that what it says? No. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Not only has Paul been bitten by a snake, but now you have the native people surrounding him to see if he's going to swell up and explode, right? Uh, I know it's probably not comical at the time, but seems a little bit funny here that they're just waiting to see if he's going to die. There was actually a story um, in Roman culture that there was a man who was a murderer who went through a great storm at sea. He landed on a beach, and while he was resting on the beach, he was bitten by a snake, and he died. And justice finally caught up with him. Okay, and so they're assuming the same is true of Paul. Now, what's interesting, if you look in, that, in your Bible, if you look at the word justice in there, there's a good chance that that word is capitalized. And the reason why that word is capitalized is because justice was the name of one of their goddesses. And her job was to enact justice on people. And so they were assuming that justice, this goddess, was enacting justice upon Paul. And so here we have this story of Paul, right? He's rescued from the sea. Yay! He gets upon shore. Yay! He he has this warm fire. Yay! And then he's bitten by a viper, a poisonous snake. And the whole island thinks he's a murderer. And they're all turned against him, waiting for him to die. You know, if I were Paul, I'd probably look up at the sky and say, really, God? Like, this is how it's going to end? After everything we've been through, this is how it's going to end? You see... Here's the thing about snake bites in our life. In the moment, snake bites are, are painful. And they seem pointless and even purposeless. But it's in those times, in those seasons where we seem snake bitten, that God is calling us to trust in him, to believe in his faithfulness and in his character and in his plan. You know, to be, to be clear, we don't always know why we are snake bitten. And sometimes we search out reasons for why certain things are happening. And and sometimes our search can be futile and even destructive if we go too far with it. But because we are called to trust God's character, we can trust his plan in the midst of being snake bitten. Now, the good thing for our sake 
is that we actually can tell why Paul was snakebitten from this passage. And so we're going to be able to see how God works in the midst of being snakebitten. And what we'll see here is three purposes, that Paul is snakebitten for authentication, for proclamation, and for sustentation. That's an awesome word. I can't wait to share more with you about that. So first, Paul is snakebitten for authentication. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, He, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Again, can you imagine the setting? Paul's there. The whole city, the whole island is convinced that he's a murderer. They're all turned against him. They're waiting for him to drop dead. And yet nothing happens. Miraculously, God heals Paul. And although the natives mistake Paul for a god, what we do see through this healing is that it authenticates Paul as a man of God, a man from God, a man with a message from God. And it authenticates all of those things because of God's healing of him. Now the application here is obvious, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you love Jesus and you want to share Jesus with somebody else and they don't quite believe it, What you need to do is you need to get a viper, a poisonous one, uh, probably in a black bag. Matter of fact, we have free ones in the atrium if you want one today because we love you. And so you need to go, and if they're like, "Ah, I don't really believe Jesus, what you need to do is stick your hand in the bag and pull out your hand with a poisonous viper attached to it and say, all right, let's wait 15 minutes. If I'm not dead, then you have to listen to me, right? That's application, isn't it? I hope not. You see, it's true that God can authenticate his messengers and his message through miraculous means. But this is not the ordinary means that God authenticates his messengers. You see, although God can authenticate people with these miracles, he normally does it through more ordinary means. See, another way God authenticates us as messengers of the gospel is not by healing our snake bites, but in giving us a power to supernaturally respond to our snake bites. A pastor two months ago uh, was right here in this pulpit. He's older than me and is a great racquetball player. And uh, he shared the story uh, of a woman named Frances Crosby. And it's such a good story and it resonates so deeply with this point that I'm going to reshare it with you. Um, Frances Jane Crosby was born March 24th, 1820. Uh, She was born in New York State. And within two months uh, of being born, she became very ill. Their family doctor was out of town, and so a substitute doctor came in. Later, it was found out that he was really no doctor of, at all. And what he, what he said for them to do, his medication was for them to take hot mustard and rub it on her eyes, okay? Spicy mustard, rub it on her eyes. So they did that. Well, eventually, she was healed of her is, illness, but because of the mustard, she was made blind. Now, as Frances Crosby grew up, um, she grew up with her grandmother because her father passed away. Her mother had to go to work, and her grandmother raised her, uh, her grandma who loved Jesus and loved poetry. And as a result of it, Frances Crosby wrote over 9,000 hymns. That's a lot. I'm trying to think if you wrote a hymn a day, how many years that would be. But that's a lot of hymns. Uh, She wrote popular ones. 
uh, that you may know. Two of them we sang this morning. She sang, Blessed Assurance, and to God be the glory. And so this is kind of her life. She was snake-bitten with this thing of blindness. Anyways, one day a, a preacher comes to her and he says, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. And she responded by saying, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, one petition before God, it would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. You see, it was not the healing from the snake bite of blindness that authenticated Francis. But it was a gospel transformation of her heart, a love for Jesus in the midst of being snake-bitten that authenticated her love of God, her joy in heaven. The fact that we are snake-bitten does not distinguish us. If you're a Christian, it doesn't distinguish you from the world because everybody is snake-bitten at some time in their life. But what distinguishes us is how we respond to being snake-bitten. It, it authenticates that we are children of God, that we are messengers of God, and that we have a message from God. And so let me ask, how do you respond to being snake-bitten? How do you respond when nothing seems to be going your way? How do you respond? What do you do? Do you whine? Do you complain? I do sometimes, for sure, many times. You see, we have a great opportunity to authenticate the good news of Jesus and the power of the gospel in our lives when we respond in faith that God has a plan and joy and hope and the heaven to come. You know, there are many verses that talk about how Christians should respond to suffering. I just want to read to you a few. Romans 5, 3-4 says, We also glory in our sufferings. Glory in our sufferings. That's different, isn't it? I mean, do you see a whole lot of people glorying in their sufferings? That would authenticate something's going on in the heart. We also glory in our sufferings because we know, we know that suffering produces perseverance and character and hope. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you. It's a privilege on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, to suffer for Jesus, to consider that a privilege. That's different. Isn't it? It shows something's happening in here. Or if we look at Revelation 2, it says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. We suffer as those who have the hope of heaven. 1 Peter 4. Rejoice, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then one final one. It's more of a story. If you remember back in Acts chapter uh, 19, I believe it was, or maybe it's Acts, it's Acts 16, when Paul and Silas go to Philippi and they're arrested and they're beaten. Um, they actually have flesh torn off their back. Uh, they're sent to go be put in prison. And the Roman guard takes them and he puts them in the inner cell, which is the dirtiest, dingiest part of the prison, the stinkiest. And so we read in Acts chapter 16, it says, Upon receiving such orders, he, the, the guard, put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
about midnight, Paul and Silas, remember, who are dirty and stinky and have had flesh ripped off of them, about midnight they were praying and singing hymns to God. And then it says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. You see, Paul and Silas suffered well. They rejoiced in the midst of their suffering. And what happened as a result is that a church was planted in Philippi. You see, there was an earthquake that happened, and, and their bonds were broken free. The doors were open. The, the, the guard was about to kill himself because he knew if they escaped that he would be killed by the Roman government. And so he's about to kill himself. But something amazing happened. When all the prisoners' doors are, are let free, none of them run away. None of them. Because they want what Paul and Silas have. They want to know what would make them rejoice and delight in the midst of suffering. And so they stay and the prison guard asks the question that all of them are wondering. Which is, what must I do to have that? What must I do to be saved? And out of that, because of the way they suffered, the church is planted in Philippi. Christians, snake bites authenticate us as messengers of God and our message from God. Not because God always heals us from these snake bites in this life, but because we are convinced we will be healed in the life to come. And so we rejoice in the midst of suffering, which puzzles the world, but authenticates the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus, the power of the hope that we have in him. Now, as we look to the next point, I want to be clear. How we respond with, with joy authenticates the good news of the gospel that we share, but it doesn't share it. We actually have to use words to share it. And so what we see is that Paul's snakebite was not only for his authentication, but also for God's proclamation. Let's look at verse 7 through 9. It says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Now the island of Malta is about eight miles wide and about 18 miles long. Uh, the emperor of Rome would have appointed a governor uh, for Malta, and it was the historians have uncovered that the name of that governor would be the chief man over all the municipalities of Malta. And so when Luke records the title of this person as the chief man of the islands, it speaks to the historical accuracy of Scripture. But here is Publius, the chief man of the island, and he welcomes Paul and probably his his two other or three other companions to come and stay with him. And during their time there with the governor, uh, they find out that his father is sick. And so Paul goes to his father to heal him, to lay hands on him, to pray for him, that he might be healed. Now we know that what happened to this man was probably something that's been called the Malta fever. The Malta fever has the same signs of fever and dysentery. Uh, it's contracted through goat's milk on the island. Uh, now there are remedies for it. But at the time, People would be sick for four months, so up to four years. Uh, elderly folks, like with any disease, could die from it. And so Paul goes and prays for him and heals him. Now what is so interesting in this account 
is that it does not list out that Paul went to, to, to evangelize the island. But I think there is good reason we can assume this happens. You see, when we look in the book of Acts, whenever there are miracles happening, it is always accompanied by the preaching of the good news of Jesus. Paul, if you remember, his mission was to go and proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, which all these Maltese people would have been. We also have seen that, that throughout Acts, every platform Paul has, when he's, when he's standing before a council, no matter what it is, he's always sharing about Jesus. In addition, we read that Paul's hands are praying on these people, that Paul is laying hands and praying for these people. And if Paul's prayers are as Christ-saturated as his writings, then he's sharing the gospel through prayer. And so I think it's easy for us to assume that the gospel of Jesus is being preached in Malta through the apostle Paul. Now here's the thing. Paul would not have had the audience of the governor, of the chief man of the island. He would not have had the audience of the entire island if he had not been bitten by a snake. Because he was bitten by a snake, and God miraculously healed him. They thought him to be a God. The governor, Publius, invites him into his home. He heals his father. Word gets out. And the whole, the whole island comes to Paul. I mean, how else is that going to happen? Unless, of course, Paul is bitten by a snake. And so God uses the snake bite for the proclamation of the gospel. A couple years ago, my wife Trish told me, she said, you're my second favorite preacher. I was like, wow, I made the top 10. I'm not so sure about her discernment, but I made her top 10. I'm okay with that. I was like, okay, so who's your favorite preacher? And she said her favorite preacher is a guy named Matt Chandler. He's a preacher down in Dallas, Texas. Great preacher, great pastor. Back in um, 2009, Matt suffered a seizure on Thanksgiving Day in his living room where he fell to the ground. Uh, he was rushed to the hospital, and they did MRIs, and it revealed that he had a ball-sized mass in his right frontal lobe. Once the tumor was removed, he was diagnosed with, um, I don't know what these words mean, I'll just say it. He was diagnosed with anaplastic or malignant non-encapsulated oligodendolomy, WHO grade 3, uh, basically it was bad. All right, can we just say that? That's my language for it. It was bad. Uh, he wasn't sure if he was going to die. He ended up going through eight months of radiation and chemo, not knowing if he was going to live. But while my, Matt was snake-bitten with cancer, he continued to proclaim the gospel even more boldly than before. One man put it this way. He says, when Matt was then diagnosed with brain cancer, it soon seemed that everywhere I looked, Matt was there preaching with a bald scalp and a pronounced cranial scar, testifying to the goodness of God. While all the truly saved Christians listened with delight, I found myself in the ridiculous position of envying a cancer patient. He may have had brain cancer, but I was the one who was sick. In the midst of my secret jealousy, Matt remained my friend. He encouraged me. He prayed for me. And so finally, one day, when we were talking on the phone, I told him. I told him I was jealous of him. I told him that I wish I had the life he had. I have talked talk to so many people who have been snake-bitten by cancer or by other serious diseases who love Jesus 
And I hear a common refrain that comes back time and time again, which is, I now have a greater platform to share Jesus with those around me. Friends, the gospel is so joyful, so powerful, that it can make others envious of a man dying of cancer because the joy of Christ is greater than long life on this earth. And so I beg you, do not waste your snake bites. Do not waste your suffering. They are too valuable of instruments in the hands of God for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Don't waste your suffering. It's too priceless. It's an instrument for God to show the power of the gospel in our lives, to authenticate the good news of Jesus, to share it with the world around us. And so we see Paul is bitten for authentication. He's bitten for proclamation. And finally, Paul is bitten for sustentation. I'm a little bit proud of this word. Um, I kind of made it up, um, and then I Googled it uh, and found out that was actually a real word, which was like, this is great. Now, I I spelled it differently, but I also spell snake wrong sometimes. And so anyways, but, but this is a real word, sustentation, okay? And here's how Webster's Dictionary defines sustentation. Sustentation is the act of sustaining or the state of being sustained. I'll read it again. Sustentation is the act of sustaining or the state of being sustained. It's preservation or provision with sustenance. You see, the Apostle Paul had a bit of a problem here. If you remember how he got on the island of Malta, uh, it was by swimming there, okay? Uh, His ship had crash-landed out in the reef, and so he had to swim to shore. Now, if you are swimming to shore, my guess is you can't carry a whole lot of food with you, uh, nor can you carry a huge wad of cash with you, okay? And so when he gets to shore, the question we're left with is, how's he going to finance eating? Like, how's he going to get food? And we see the people of Malta are very generous, which is great. But the other question is, how is he going to continue his trip? Like, like God has called him to go to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. God has said this is going to happen. But how is he going to finance this trip? How is he going to, going to sustain his trip? And then we get to verse 10. And it says, They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Whatever we needed. Why was Paul sustained? How did he get provision for his, for his journey, for the mission God had called him to? Well, he was bitten by a snake. He was miraculously healed. Because of that, they thought he was a god. Because of that, he was able to, to go and stay with Publius. Because of that, he healed his father. And because he healed his father, the whole, the whole country came to him where he healed them and he, he shared the gospel with them, assumingly. And because they were so overjoyed by this, they supplied all of his needs to continue with his journey. Why? Because he was bitten by a snake. Verse 11, we see how the provision carries him forward. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And so if you look up here, we have the map, just kind of retracing. Uh, Acts chapter 27, 
Paul started in Caesarea, makes this fantastic journey. There's a typhoon, hurricane, blows them to Malta towards the direction of Rome by God's providence. Uh, They're in Malta, they take off, they go up along Sicily, and they come up towards Italy and in the region of Rome. Now, I want to stop and pause just for a second uh, because, you know, this is a time actually to kind of reflect on what God has done. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain, but when you get to the top, if there's not a whole lot of trees, you kind of sit down and you, and you look down and you kind of retrace the steps that you took. And so I want to do that briefly with Paul because if we look back at Acts chapter 19, it starts this whole journey. You know, here in verse 14, there are those, those words that maybe we pass by but are extremely significant that says, and so we came to Rome. This is the summit of a long trip. And back in Acts 19.21, we read that now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must go to Rome. And so for nine chapters, it's the story of Paul's journey towards Rome. For seven years of his life, he's journeying towards Rome. And finally, Paul is at Rome. Paul is at the place, the hub of the empire, where he can proclaim the gospel and then can go out throughout the entire empire. This was Paul's vision. This was the Lord's promise. And yet all the way, Paul was beaten. He's put in jail. He was unfairly tried. He went through hurricanes, through literal snake bites. And yet all along the way, God sustains his servant and he sustains his mission. And so when we get to verse 10, it says, And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This should amaze us, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because God always sustains his people for his plan. There's a famous missionary to China's name, Hudson Taylor. And he says this in one of his journal entries. He says, our heavenly father is a very experienced one. I love that. God is an experienced father. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. And then he goes on to say, we do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. He says, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Christians, we serve a great God who can turn snake bites into his sustaining grace for us and for the mission that he has called us to. Let me end with this. Um, my conclusion's a little bit longer than usual, so stick with me if you would. The major question we have in this passage is this. How should we interpret snake bites in our life? How should we interpret suffering in our life? How should we interpret it when things go wrong? What does this tell us about who God is, the character of God? What does this tell us about our relationship with God? Does this mean that God is mad at us or that God is punishing us? Well, let's look and see how the Maltese people interpreted snake bite. Verse 4 again. If you look there, it says, When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, their goddess, has not allowed him to live. And so what's their interpretation of suffering? What's their interpretation of the snake bite? That God is punishing Paul, right? And I would say that's, that's the major opinion of the day, that if you're going through something bad, that's probably because God is punishing you. And that may be true in every other religion. That may be their view in every other religion. But that is not the Christian view of suffering. That is not the Christian view of snake bites. 
You know, I want to make sure that you hear this very clearly. That if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, the Lord God will never, ever punish you. If you are in Christ, God will never punish you. He is never out to get you to punish you. We know this by looking at the cross. You see, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we read about another snake, a serpent, Satan. And he's a crafty, deceptive serpent. And his desire is to separate man from God and to get man in trouble. And so he tells them lies. He whispers questions so that they, so that they disobey God, so they get in trouble, so that they are punished by death. But then God comes to that serpent, the devil, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, Satan's goal was to deceive man, to get him in trouble, to get him to be punished by God, by death for all eternity. But the good news of the gospel is God sent his son, Jesus, to take on all of our sin and all of our punishment and to pay for it in full at the cross. And so at the cross, Jesus takes on your punishment and my punishment for sin. And that punishment is death. And so this means that we can be confident that God is never going to punish us if we are in Christ. So then how should we understand snake bites? How should we interpret suffering? There's many ways that Scripture lists. I just want to give you two fairly quick ones. The first, we can interpret snake bites as the Lord's discipline. Discipline is far different than punishment. The purpose of punishment is to enact justice or, or, or payback or revenge, right? That's, that's what punishment is. But discipline has a purpose of restoration, to build somebody up, to take away something from their life that is hurting them or to restore a relationship in their life. And so God comes not to punish his children, but to discipline his children because he loves them and cares for them and wants greater things for them. Hebrews 12 puts it this way, and you can read behind me. It says, have you forgotten, it might be a little bit off, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines those ones he loved. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the Spirit and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, snake bites, rather than pleasant. But latter, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained by it. You know, if we are honest, snake bites are painful. They're inconvenient. They're even annoying. But God uses this to discipline his children, to restore them, not to punish them, because he loves them, because he wants to remove self-destructive habits from their life, because he wants to grow them closer to himself. And so one way we interpret snake bites is discipline from a heavenly father who loves us and cares for us. But another way, which is what I think is happening here in Acts chapter 28, 
Another way we can interpret snake bites is that through these, God is accomplishing a better purpose, a perfect purpose, a loving purpose for our lives and for the sake of his kingdom. You see, Paul's snake bite made three things possible. Paul's validation as a man of God, Paul's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, and Paul's sustenation to finish the journey that God had promised. And so we can understand snake bites in this way, but we must know that they are never a punishment for his children. They always have a purpose of a loving heavenly father, either to discipline us and bring us closer to himself or to accomplish a glorious and mysterious plan that we cannot understand. Final story, I promise. My wife Trish and I, when we get talking about the topic of Jacob's Well Church, we are just so thankful for this church. I mean, we love being here, and, and it's kind of like one of those things where we're like, oh, we could be their best friends, and their best friends, and their best friends, and their best friends. Like, it just keeps going, because we love the people here. We have great friendships, great fellowships here. We are so thankful for this church. But we're also thankful for how God is using people like us, like messed up people like Trish and I, to do amazing things, okay? It's been awesome to see how the gospel is transforming people's hearts. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. People who know Jesus Christ are getting joy in Jesus Christ through the good news of the gospel. It's amazing to see how God is working through this church. It's amazing to see how he's launched this church planning movement with more lighthouses of the gospel throughout northeast Wisconsin. I mean, when we look at it, we really look down from that mountaintop back at the path and we're like, how could this possibly be? And so we are so thankful for what God has done here. But do you know why Jacob's well was planted? Do you know why it was planted? It's because I stink at selling advertising for college coupon books. Jacob's well was planted because I have a weak back and I can't dig holes. Jacob's well was planted because being a substitute teacher was not a sustainable income. You see, we don't always know why God puts certain snake bites in our life, but what we do have is a promise from God that he will use all things, even bad things, even snake bites, for the good of those who love him and to accomplish the better plan of his kingdom. Christian, for you, snake bites are never punishment from God. They are part of his defined plan to conform us to the image of Jesus, to draw us closer to himself, and to accomplish his glorious plan of love. Let's pray. Lord, I confess to you, I often look at the snake bites in my life and say, seriously, what's going on, God? Why is this happening? And sometimes, Lord, I, I confess I see you as a vengeful father that maybe is punishing me. Forgive me for that view of you, Lord. Lord, help us as a people to understand that, that you have all things under your dominion. And there is purpose even in the snake bites, even if we don't know it this side of heaven, that we can trust your character, we can trust your resume, we can know that you are a good God that loves us, that is using it both to conform us to the image of Jesus, but to accomplish a will that is absolutely glorious. And so Lord, teach us, comfort us, and help us to rejoice in the midst of snake bites. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.